Hey everyone, this is That Guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to That Podcast in Hutch. This week, we're coming back to the second part of a two-part series where we're kind of trying this experiment where my friend Jackson Swearer has turned the microphone around and he's asking the questions and I'm answering the questions. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode, kind of uh, Jackson kind of takes me through some of my uh, early educational experiences and and growing up in Nickerson and moving into uh, my work experience and and just kind of an overview of some of those things that shaped my my life a little bit. And the second part, we we move a little forward on that, uh, talk a little bit more about my time at the Hutchison News and and move on through that conversation. Uh, we, we ended up having such a good conversation and a good time talking that we, we went on long enough that we needed to break it into two parts. And uh, again, like I said last week, we got some good feedback from everyone. Uh, we're kind of asking everyone to tell us if they, if they like this sort of thing, because there's a number of topics where we could do this on, um, maybe even bring different people on to do the interviews. But if you like this sort of thing, be sure to let us know and we'll, we'll come up with some ideas on how to do that differently. And as always, if any of you have ideas about people that uh, you'd like to hear from or stories you'd like to hear, people you'd like to have me interview, uh, don't hesitate to let me know because we're always looking for those good stories. So thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this week's episode, the second part of me being interviewed by my friend Jackson. And uh, again, if you, if you, come in halfway and you're a little confused, go back, find last week's episode and listen to that. And that'll give you a little more context as we move into this second part. So you get this job at the paper and I want to pause for just a moment before we talk more about that um, and kind of how you grew up through the paper and what that was like. Um, One of the things that you said that I thought was interesting was you, um, two things about working at Mega, you had to get had to get some of these ideas out. So you were just scribbling on things just to get them out of your head. And then you used your experience with watching people, watching your friends get laid off with you getting laid off and you process that experience through writing. Is that something that you still use as a tool for yourself to process your ideas, to write them? Is that part of what motivates you obviously do a lot of writing these days too. You write, um, column regularly that goes in the paper you write newsletters um you write about your podcast that's going to come out every week you know what talk about how you use writing to process information and emotions and well writing for me is uh you know i i think writing i used to joke that my brain was connected to my keyboard like i mean i think better when I'm having to actually put the words down and think about what I'm saying and think about the words that I choose and think about how I put those words together. Um, So I find that my, while in my head, thoughts may be um, bouncing around, uh, clashing into each other, unclear or confusing. Often when I, when I can sit down and write, something happens and I'm able to organize those thoughts a lot better. And, and so as I get them out, it's, it is processing them and it's putting them down. And then I have to read them and process them and think about what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, how I'm saying it. Um, 
I think, and I'm, I'm glad for that. I mean, we live in a world today. I had a conversation with someone not too long ago about Twitter and how, and its effect on the legislative process. Um, and, and, and one of the things that, well, I think it was Tom Sawyer that talked about this, that one of the problems is that as we're debating bills or as we're talking about issues or as we're asking questions, there's a live Twitter feed going on about what's being said and what's being done. And constituents are immediately reacting to that, which then influences our reaction. Because if we see that there's a Twitter storm happening because of some question we've asked or because of some comment we've made, we now second guess ourselves and we think about, is, am I doing this right or whatever? And it doesn't lend itself to like the slower, deliberate, thoughtful approach that that I find when I can write things out. I think we're kind of okay with the reactionary approach uh, on processing thoughts, or I don't even know if that's processing a thought, but we seem to live in a place where we're just reactionary. And, and one of the benefits for me in writing is that I get to resist the urge to be reactionary in the moment and say, I'm going to write these things out. And if I need to, I'll write it and I'll walk away from it for a day and come back to it and decide if it's still, if it still feels good and then, and then put it out. But it's not immediate, but to me, it's a better way for me definitely to process things. Yeah. It's interesting that there are, there are those trade-offs, right? So Twitter is good because you can get immediate feedback but bad because that immediate feedback is only 140 characters and mm -hmm. therefore, and it's also immediate itself. So probably on average less thoughtful than say a bit of written testimony that you receive in committee about whether you should or should not pass a certain bill. So there you do get lots of feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and, and as a community, you know, just a member of the world right now, we have the opportunity to consume all sorts of different kinds of writing and what we, what we consume in its form probably influences the way that we think about things in ways that we're not even fully conscious of or aware of. So if we feed ourselves a diet of Twitter, um, then we are feeding our mind sort of surface level thoughts mm -hmm. of other people. Uh, but if we feed ourselves long thought through longer form content, then we're able to really chew on ideas a little more fully. And I think that's related to the news business as well. So I might have a question for you about that with all of your experience working at the news, you know, you were from the copy desk to being a reporter and then you became an editor. Mm -hmm. Also there was, has been a big evolution of that industry over that period of time that you, you sat through with the evolution of the internet. I mean, you got into that sort of right after 9-11, dot-com boom, everything is exploding. Mm -hmm. um, and so the news has changed a lot as well. It used to be sort of a long time ago, much more longer form things, just the hour long evening news. Mm -hmm. Now we've got 24 hour cable television. How, how have you seen that industry change and how is the emphasis on being first instead of being right? And um, how, how, how have you seen that maybe have some positive and, and negative effects on the industry? Well, I, overall, I, I have not been happy with what 
I've seen happen in the news industry. It seems that it's starting to move through the cycle a little bit and things are getting a little bit better now. Um, but certainly in part of that period, there was a lot of pressure um, for news to adapt. And, and they were slow to adapt. They, they, it's, it's really unfortunate if the industry had adapted sooner and embraced you know, some of the technological changes sooner, uh, we might not have been feeling that pressure to change so rapidly. Um, but yeah, we moved to being first. We moved to, it was less important to get all the facts and all the details. And it was more important to just get it out and we could update later and we could get more information later and we could change the story later if we needed to. But I think it lends itself to putting out inaccurate information. It lends itself to putting out information that hasn't been verified. And ultimately, I think that leads to uh, a distrust, right? If your first version of your story that you put out at 10 o'clock has something fundamentally wrong with it and you're updating that story at noon and then part of that story is corrected but there's still something wrong and the final version of your story comes out the next day and it has all the accurate information i'm not I, i'm not sure that that resonates with people i think by then they've read two or three versions of your story that has incomplete information or or inaccurate information and so that's already in their mind um the other thing is that we started paying more attention to which stories people indicated they wanted to read. Um, you know, the way we used to approach news uh, was we're going to put some stories we know will resonate in our story selection, some stories that we know people want to read, but we're going to have this other story that maybe is longer and maybe a little more wonky. Um, but if it's here in this mix, people might read it and take an interest in it. Um, I think of a story that Mary Clarkin did um, that on its surface would be very boring and few people would care about, but it was about actually how the dates back then that we had for mailing out ballots to people overseas was making it so that people in the service serving in another country were getting a ballot. It had to be mailed to them before the filing deadline. So people were getting ballots without all the information on it. And she wrote that story and it's not exciting. It's not gonna be at the top of the click list on any of the stories that you're gonna have, but it's important. And through that story, like there was a change from that. Those are the sort of things that journalism, good journalism can do and should do, right? We, we changed that, we, that raised the issue, elevated it in the minds of the people who cared. Um, and then some people who didn't know they cared read the story and realized they cared very much. And so out of that came a change in how we did that so that we couldn't mail the ballots until we actually knew who was going to be on the ballot. Um, things like that. But that's not a sexy story. That's not one that's going to be one of your top viewed stories. It's kind of a boring story. Boring doesn't mean important. Uh, sometimes important stories are not very exciting, but they need to be part of the mix because I think people need to see some of the things that are going on in the world and know about them. So part of what I hear there is a sentiment that the news can play an important role for a community in elevating issues that people maybe aren't aware of and leading, leading to change. And I can think of some, uh, some great um, 
some great investigative journalism that happened at the paper while you were there. In particular, I'm thinking about some of the work around housing and some of the work mm -hmm. on the Wiley building that ultimately ended up being very influential um, in, in leading to some transformative changes. But I also know that there are, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who are concerned about you know, media bias and journalists in taking their opinions and putting them into their work and sort of presenting it as fact. So I'm curious about how you how you view the need to, to balance that to sort of where does um, using journalism to elevate things that need to be elevated in the community and also trying to be unbiased. How do you bring those two things together? Well, in my mind, it's it's not so much an issue of being neutral or impartial as it is in being fair. Um, you know, I I think we we, we new, the news industry for years has said, well, we're 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 impartial. Well, no, we're we're not impartial because the 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 stories that we look at every every individual newspapers or any news organization is a collection of individuals all of whom bring a, a lived experience to that we all have a point of view right yes. there's no amount of attempting to step outside of ourselves can erase the fact that we are always filtering our understanding of the world through our own point of view. That's right. So yeah, so we all have this point of view and we bring that as individuals to to an organization, to the legislature, to our workplaces and to the news. Um, so you have to be honest about that and say, okay, I, I view the world this way. And so this is why I ask these questions and this is why I raise these issues or I want to do these stories. But it's important to say, to turn that over and say, I understand this is my bias. I understand this is the experience that shapes my view of the world. How do I turn that over and look at this from a different perspective of how somebody else might view the world? Some things that get conflated in, in all of this is that it is really like when it's like just the facts, when you're talking about a house fire or you're talking about um, an arrest or something that happened, that is looking at that and saying, what are the facts? What are, what, are, what are these people? What does the prosecution say? What does the defense say? That's important to just be factual. But when you're talking about issues like housing, um, that requires a little more because it's a bigger project, because it's uh, in-depth and because you're looking f at data sets, it's important to say, um, how, how do we elevate? Like the question is, do we have an issue? Um, and that's, it was, do we have an issue with housing? Some people say we do, some people say we don't. What can we do to try to figure it out? Well, we start analyzing reams and reams of data about owner-occupied housing, the year that it was built, um, the tax value, all these things, and try to take that question and apply that to a place that says, this is how we establish the facts around this. And then, tell the stories of people, right? We told the stories of landlords. We told this, that's where the fairness comes in. My view is we do have a housing issue. We've had it for a long time. There's a lot of neglected property. I'm not saying there's like what the answer is to do that, but I'm gonna tell you the story of landlords and the challenges they have. I'm gonna tell you the stories of renters and the challenges they have. I'm gonna tell you the story of uh, 
the city council and taxing entities and the struggles they have. So, so you look at you look at those individual stories and you tell the stories of people and you tell the stories of people from different perspectives to try to paint a, a global picture of what it is. And then done right, policymakers can use that information to try to determine wh- where to go from there. But we have a situation now where <laughs> everybody blames the internet. I actually blame 24-hour news more for this issue. And the internet has kind of been an extension of that. But there was never a need to fill 24 hours a day of content on 80 different channels. And because of that, we've now carved up and diced up information to fit a narrow audience because that works better. If we can have a narrow, smaller audience, but they're very intense and they're consistent viewers, the financial model works better for that. Um, And we see that all over because we can... You can have a newspaper or a website or a TV station for every point of view in the world. And it's getting harder and harder for people to sort through that and figure out what they think the truth is. And and as a result, I think people just overall have less faith in the information that they're consuming. And and it's hard for them to figure out what's valid and what's hyperbolic and what is partisan and what's tilted. Um, there are tools you can use to determine that, but I think people just get exhausted because so much of what comes with them is doesn't seem legitimate. And so they just kind of, they either check out altogether or they attach to one point of view that is easy to, to agree with and kind of meets the their idea of the world. And then they shut out everything else. And I just don't think that's helpful. You know, you know one thing that I think is interesting to point out about the evolution of newspapers most communities in prior to the 1960s had two papers at least and one was a republican paper and one was a democrat paper and most households took both and they read them both and the editors would take pot shots at each other um the stories would be there but from the different perspective and i think people had maybe a uh a more well-rounded exposure to any issue. Um, and I, I think that we, now we've just carved and diced this up into such small audiences, it's hard for people to figure out where the truth lies. There are a couple of things there that I like. One is this, uh, this idea that we need to look at things from different points of view uh, and that that can be helpful for forming our overall understanding about what's really going on. And that might be from the, the need to listen to the the Democrat newspaper or the Republican newspaper, or um, whether that's that might mean doing your story about housing and talking to landlords and talking to renters. One of my favorite um, pieces of journalism that I know about that you have done was trying to elevate the the voices of a group of people that we often don't don't hear from their point of view when we talk about issues relating to substance misuse. We often don't. Uh, lift up the voices of people who are in recovery mm-hmm. where you often talk about talk to the experts so we talk to people about you know in within the justice system but I know you did a, a an in-depth story on one of the local Oxford houses mm-hmm. can you talk about what motivated you to do that story how did you even get that idea and 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 share with listeners about that experience uh, I think you may have talked about this a little bit when you had Jackie Espinosa mm-hmm. on, but um, I just think that's such an interesting story. Well, 
I, I remember at the time, you know, we were, there were several Oxford houses in town that had just been stood up. And I felt, I mean, I was starting to hear the, the, the thought that people didn't know what this is about. People are generally wary of any sort of group housing at all. Um, and, and some of the things that I would start hearing is, well, there's an Oxford house in my neighborhood and it's, uh, there's going to be all these, you know, drug addicts living next door to me or, or whatever. And it was concerning me that people had that view. Um, but I can also understand why, right? If you've lived in your quiet neighborhood, I mean, it, it, without knowing who your new neighbors are or understanding why this model is effective, um, it would be concerning to, if you're an 80 year old grandma who's lived in your house for all of your life. And um, now all of a sudden this new group of people with tattoos and whatever else are moving in next door to you, probably a little bit scary. So part of what I thought was, I, I wanna go find out what this is about. I wanna talk about why this model works and I wanna talk about the people who are here and why they're here and what they get from it. And so I decided I would spend the weekend there. Um, and I, I called, uh, I called the Oxford House on Main Street, talked to Matt Griffith and asked if I could stay the weekend there. And he talked to the group and they said, that sounds good. I think they were a little apprehensive because, I mean, it, you know, they have, they're, they're a little bit nervous too, right? They're trying to make inroads in the community. And they, I think there's some apprehension around that. But I went there and they bunked me up with uh, a guy named Lance um, who had, I think had, been out of prison not very long at that at that time. And uh, anyway, I spent the whole weekend, cooked, ate dinner with them, spent the night there, got up the next morning, uh, saw the chores unfolding and just hung out with them. And, and then I went and talked to them at their meeting. They have like a weekly meeting. Uh, and that was really a, uh, something that was remarkable to see because what it was, was uh, it was a family. It was a group of people who had formed a family. A lot of these people come from backgrounds where they don't have that family structure. They never had it. Um, or maybe they did, but they violated it in some way, and so it wasn't available to them. Um, but they had all had to learn how to forgive themselves for what they had, what they had done in their drug use. And, uh, and they found love and acceptance in, in the people in Oxford House. And I wanted to show the community that this wasn't something to be scared of, um, that it could be good and that the people here are good and well-intentioned. One of the funny things about it is like, if you want to live in an area that is drug-free, you're not going to have any better neighbor than an Oxford house. Because if somebody does start using, they're out. Like they can't be in an Oxford house if they're using because that jeopardizes the well-being of everyone else in the house. Um, so that's one of the things that came out of that. Like you, you, there's no more drug-free environment than an Oxford house because they just don't allow it. Um, but the structure of it, the way that that it helps people, the way that they support each other, that was really uh, that was eye-opening for me, and and really even changed the way I I didn't know going to that story what I'd get. I just knew that I wanted to be able to explain it. I wanted to talk to the people in it and I wanted to see what that was about. I didn't know what to expect, but what I what I came away from was a, a much more fondness for, for, for that group of people, uh, for people who have struggled with addiction 
and, and a big believer that the supportive nature of Oxford House was definitely one of the tools we needed to have available in our community. I mean, we've been struggling with this issue here for ages, and it just seemed like this is a very supportive way for our community to try to address that. I was very happy with that work. I, I felt like it helped explain the, the difficult issue of substance misuse to people as well as what can be gained from a place like Oxford House. Well, we now have more and more in our community, and I think it's become a very successful strategy. Um, it's a good intervention. Uh, I, I'm sort of a pragmatist. I like my, my policies and my interventions to work. And it seems like this Oxford House model works. Um, so It does. I mean, if people stay there 18 months, I think there's like a 70% uh, success rate, maybe even higher than that. Um, if, if you stay there for an extended period of time, you will not go back to using drugs, period. Um, that's, that's better than just about anything else we have ever, ever tried. Yeah, and the core of that is the, the connection and, yep. and the care for each other that gets built there, right? The opposite of addiction is connection. Yep. Um, so as a reporter, you're able to go and investigate um, things that are going on in the community, write stories about them, elevate those issues. But later on in your career at the news, you also took on the role of being an opinion editor. So that's a that's a very different sort of role, and one that I think that um, sometimes people in their commentary and complaints about the media will conflate. That some some stories are reporting, and and some think some columns that are written are intended to be an opinion, and um, perhaps should be held to a slightly different standard. Um, Although I would think you would still want to be fair, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, but there's certainly no uh, no implication that the opinion page is impartial. Talk to me about that transition um, and maybe what you enjoyed or found challenging about having to write the opinion columns in contrast to the reporting. So writing the opinion columns yeah, it's so different than reporting because on the opinion columns, my job is to read the news that's been reported by other people to look into or or just read reports or statements or whatever, and then make a judgment and then turn that judgment into a column that says this is the opinion. And it's a different beast altogether. You have to be able to be certain in your and, and strong in your approach on that. You have to articulate your arguments well. Um, you have to acknowledge the other side. I think you have to acknowledge that there is an, another side. I always found it important to say this is, you know, there's this other point of view. Here, here's what they think. Here's why it's wrong, you know, in an opinion piece. Um, but some people don't get that. They think that the presence of an opinion piece anywhere taints all the other content. And that's just simply, in, in my experience, that's not true. I wrote opinion pieces. The reporters wrote what they wrote. Um, they did the investigation. They did the research. I never in my time said, I want to write an opinion on this. Can you go do this story? We tried, we kept that process organic. They would write their stories and then I would process the stories and write the opinion pieces later. Um, but I think it plays an important role. I mean, going back to William Allen White, right? I mean, 
the Emporia Gazette. He had a philosophy that was you're fair in your reporting and you're merciless on your opinions, right? You just, mm. you, you just, you, you, you're fair and you're balanced in you and what you report and you don't allow those two to influence each other. But once the reporting is done, you get to make a decision on what you think is right and what you think is wrong. And I remember that I, we used to teach this class to high school students about, you know, working on their own student newspapers and work on writing. And I remember a student asked me one time how you could write your opinion uh, without offending people. And I said, well, if you write, in a, if you have a, an opinion and it's a strong opinion, you're going to offend some people. Uh, but there's a difference between you can offend people without being offensive. Um, but if you take a stand, you're probably always going to offend somebody because they're going to have a different opinion. You just have to be willing to deal with that. Um, so that was kind of one of the things that came out of opinion. You, you helped me develop a little thicker skin because a lot of people didn't agree with what I wrote and that's fine. Can you think of what one of your most controversial or, um, uh, opinion pieces was? Oh, without a doubt. It was the, uh, Obituary was it, for yeah, I was I was gonna I was gonna one wondering was it the obituary? Um, I wanted to talk about that column uh, today, so maybe we can do that now. Um, so tell listeners about what that was, just in case you know anyone who listens to Jason Pro's podcast doesn't know about uh, this column that you wrote. Was, was it 2013? It was 2013. So yeah, 2013. Uh, Sam Brownback's governor in 2010 uh in 2012 we purged out almost all the moderates out of the senate uh and i i can't remember what happened in the house but it was there was a whole scale movement to get rid of moderate republicans and and democrats and and basically make sure that he had a legislature that saw the world very much like he did um that was the year that the Brownback, 2012, the Brownback tax cut went into place. Um, but it wasn't just that. It was like there, there, was, an, there was an effort to undo uh, Kansas's like nine, at the time, like 90-year history of a ban on basically, a big, we call it corporate farming, but it was basically like a ban on vertical integration of agriculture, right? We never wanted to have a company that could own the land, the 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 uh, elevator, the mill, and the cell of the product. We like we wanted to make sure that because uh, there was a fear, you know, a hundred years ago, that if a company could own every level of ag production, that there was no room for the farmer, that they were going to control every part of that. And we see some of this, right? We see some of this with. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of complaints about some of the the very big. Uh, beef packing plants that have outsized influence over the prices that producers get. So there was that, there was, it just seemed like everything that can every policy that Kansas had had in place that was kind of forward thinking and kind of uh, designed to protect people uh, was, was under assault and it was all happening at once. And it was really concerning to me. I mean, there, I can't even remember all the things that were happening, but we were just, it seemed like a fundamental change in, Kansas approach to everything. And uh, 
So I was like trying to think, because I couldn't keep up from an editorial position. I could not keep up and write every day about all the things that were coming out of Topeka that were concerning. Um, and I was thinking, how can I really let people know that they have got to start paying attention? Because if they're not paying attention, all these things are going to go away and they're going to be replaced with really bad things. And I also felt that like it was Washington, D.C., politics that had come to Kansas, which I didn't really, I didn't want. But I also felt like people do what people do, right? They're living their lives, they're doing whatever, and there was no sense of urgency about paying attention to this and seeing what was happening. So just randomly as I'm thinking and processing, how, how can I tell people about all these things? Just a random thought entered that I would write the state's obituary. I just write that the state had died. And I was like, oh, that could be good. So I wrote that and just listed all these things that I wrote it like an obituary and that published on Easter morning. Uh, so like March 31st of 2013 and uh, it went crazy. I mean, it was all over the place and um, I was a little shocked at how widely shared that was and the reaction to all of that. Where was the most interesting place that that got shared or that you went to talk about that or the most two or three? Or more well i know some some guy from ireland got a hold of me about it uh somebody from england um it ended up i ended up doing an interview with npr about that um i got shipped all i mean there, i had requests from all over the state to talk about it um i had a guy in lawrence who wanted to print it up on a like a old typeset machine and and so we did that um yeah, it was just really, I don't know, I think it was, it, it was so simple, and that, that's one of the things, right? It was a complex issue, it was hard to explain to people what was going on and why they needed to pay attention, but the form was unusual, and it was simple, and it was a form that is very familiar to people, that it caught their attention, and, and, and it did, and it just went all over. And I also ended up, I know you're involved in the... Uh, the uh, Talk 20. Oh, yeah. And so I was invited to speak at the first Talk 20, which I thought would have maybe 20 or 30 people at it. And it turned out that they had, it was completely packed and there were people lining the walls and sitting on the floor and out in the hallway, um, which now we know when, when we can have it, uh, we fill the whole first floor of the library with hundreds and hundreds of people who come to hear like the really interesting stories of people in this community. Um, yeah, that's, I am involved in that. It's one of my favorite things that, that happens here in Hutchinson. I can't wait until we can, can gather again and do that, um, safely, which I, I think, you know, I'd knock on some wood, but it, it'd make a bunch of noise, but hopefully in July we'll be able to do that. And I think, uh, one of the reasons why that resonates so much is because it's local people sharing their own stories. And that's just a lot of what we've been talking about in this kind of segment here, talking about the news is elevating the stories of real people. And um, I suspect that listening to, to the stories of real people has a, still continues to have a pretty big influence over the way that you do your work today as a legislator as well. Yeah, uh, we, <laughs> I think we get bound up a little bit in the, uh, the idea that um, we're doing policy work, right? Or there's, there's a reason this policy should or shouldn't happen. But at, at the bottom of this, the only reason a thing like a government exists at all, the only reason that people are elected to do this work 
is to to understand the the people that they're doing it for and to try to like kind of create the pathway for most of them to to thrive and if we don't understand those if we get caught up at the at the policy level of things without understanding the stories and understanding how policy interacts with people's lives and how it influences their lives and how it makes their lives harder or easier or whatever, then I really don't understand what the point of this is, right? I mean, it's all about people, but if you don't take the time, if you stay in the policy world all the time and you don't take the time to understand how it affects people on a personal level, it, it's really, it seems like it would be really unfulfilling work. I mean, it, and stories, if we do this right, the stories of people and the struggles they have and the challenges they face should be a tool for us to understand flaws in our policy or gaps in our policy or new policies that we need to consider. But we're not going to understand that if, if we're not hearing the stories, which is actually one of my fundamental problems with what happens in Topeka is that we have people who are paid to tell the story of a certain group, right? They're paid very well to make sure that we as policymakers understand that story. Business community needs X, Y, Z. Um, this industry is having a problem with this issue or they're having a conflict with another industry and we need you as a lawmaker to help us resolve it. And they come in and they tell their story. The other group comes in and tells their story. There's some discussion. Uh, eventually there's some kind of resolution maybe reached and that's what we do. But I feel like the story of the people, that's the, that's the missing part, right? I mean, in effect, lawmakers should be the lobbyist for people, right? I love that. I love that concept. You've got the lobbyists for all the other groups, but you all should be the lobbyists for your constituents. Yeah. In, in my view, I'm, I should be there to represent people. And if a lobbying group can convince me that what's good for them is also good for people, then we should have a conversation about that and should have that discussion about whether that's in fact right or not and, and what that would look like. And, you know, some examples of that are it's pretty well established. I don't like a lot of these tax credits that we give out to businesses all the time. But we have these conversations and there are some tax credits that flow through business that then can help direct directly help families like pay off student loans or or manage college debt or whatever or pay for childcare those seem to be like that's kind of where the, those things you, there's a confluence between two competing interests on that but we have to understand what people need and what challenges they face it can't all come from this top heavy area where people are basically paid to tell that story we need to hear the stories of people on the other end of the spectrum who are frankly either too busy working or living their story to take the time to tell it, which is going back to journalism is another one of those important parts that journalism plays, that journalism can tell those stories and bring it from, from this realm over to another realm where it's on people's radar. I can absolutely see the connection between your background in journalism and how that influences the approach that you take to your your job as a legislator and we sort of uh i was i was carefully walking us through the history a little bit we just sort of jumped straight to that um and um i'm wondering if we can uh go back just briefly and kind of share um that 
the story of that transition as well. So you you left Mega to go to the news. You'd been laid off there, mm -hmm. um, and you spent quite a long time with the news. About and fifteen years. So, and I think if I've been following the math along right, that was definitely the longest you ever were. You were at any employer oh, yes. by a by, by, a, long by a long margin. Um, so, what was you know what ultimately contributed to you? deciding to leave your role at the news and to become a legislator and, and how did that happen? Well, a couple of things came together all at the all at the same time. Uh, the the first is well actually in 2016 2016 no before that. So I came in in 2017 to the legislature uh, Patsy Terrell had won the race uh, and she began the session in 2017. Sometime in 2015, I had been approached by both Republicans and Democrats to consider running for the 102nd district. And I was very good friends with Patsy and her and I had a number of conversations about the possibility of doing this. Ultimately, I didn't feel that the decision was right at the time for me. And she had been approached and somebody, uh, so her and I would talk about that. And she said to me one day, um, if you want to do it, I don't, I'm going to back out and I don't want to do it. But if you aren't going to do it, then I want to. And I told her, I think you should run. And so she did. And, but she did serve that first year and then had in very tragic circumstances, uh, died right at the end of that first session. Uh, almost immediately, uh, people raised the idea that maybe I would be a good replacement and that, that they thought Patsy would be happy if I would have replaced her. And so I started considering that a little bit. Um, and then the other thing that was going on at the time was that the Hutchison News had been, which had been a family owned newspaper chain for a long time, well, for its entire history, had now been purchased by Gatehouse. Uh, Gay House has now been purchased by Gannett, and we're in this mode where all the media companies are being you know, consumed and brought into this kind of mega, mega media empire thing, all under Gannett USA. Um, I did not like what was happening under Gatehouse, and I kind of you could look and see examples of what they had done at other papers throughout the country. Their mo was to go in, uh, gut the staff, gut the resources down to a bare minimum and and then prop up you know a paper that could sell some advertising um so i was really frustrated with what was going on there i felt that i probably didn't have much much time left i think my job and what i did there probably wasn't going to be much appetite to keep paying that salary for for too much longer so i i weighed you know like I have this job and I have this going on and now I have this, you know, possibility in front of me and I have to decide, am I going to jump out on a limb and leave, leave a secure job that's seeming less secure all the time and do this other thing, which is also not secure because it, you can lose it every two years. Um, yeah. So you're, you know, so you get, a, you get appointed, um, by precinct committee people to that role. Yep. So, um, which is something that obviously rarely happens um so that's a little unusual you get into that job without having to win a campaign the first time but you know you only you only really have a job for a year and then you gotta go win it again um that's yeah. that's uh 
sort of a, a very different kind of leap uh, from the, the leaving Mega. You were forced out at Mega. Here you had to make a choice. Although they were similar in a way, I think, because you were kind of saw the writing on the wall. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I could I could see that. But it was a diff it was a difficult time because I I didn't know. I mean, I took a huge pay cut, one thing, to leave the job at the news and and do this. That's something I think people don't really necessarily always understand, just how little we pay our state legislators. And though uh, that might be uh, contributing to the fact that most of them are retired or otherwise wealthy business owners. Yeah, I, I mean, I tell people that all the time, you get what you pay for. I mean, and there's a reason... Uh, there's a kind of singular view. Uh, it's better now. I think we're seeing more uh, people from more backgrounds, more diversity in the building. But yeah, by and large, uh, you had to be at a certain place in your life and you had to have a certain amount of financial resources available to you. Um, and generally that's either that you're retired or that you're self-employed and your business is churning along well enough that you can leave it in somebody else's hands for a while. Um, but yeah, that 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 shapes the way policy is made because there's not a broad perspective in the building. Um, but yeah, it's we get paid eighty eight dollars and some change every day, and there's a per diem that I think during session is about one hundred and fifty dollars. Um, and it's just it's not, and that's why we don't see many working families there. We don't see single moms there. We don't see younger people there because um, they can't afford it. And if they could, if they, even if they cared, even if they wanted to do it, a lot of them just are, they can't make it financially work or they can't justify giving up prime earning years to go do this work and do a, a, effectively a service job for their community when they could be making money that's gonna secure their retirement or you know provide the, the nice things that people like to have in life. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's a it's a problem that I think affects policy in ways that we don't fully consider. But I was willing to do it, and so and and there are others who do, and I'm glad for that. But yeah, it was a, it was a shock to the system because we weren't in session, so I didn't have money really coming in from from doing that, and so I had to kind of scramble and figure out how I was going to pay my bills during that time. Yeah, I, re I remember. You know, we we were friends by then, so. I remember when that transition happened and you were you were running around doing all kinds of different different side jobs that, that you've picked up. And I think seems like now you've settled into a little bit of a better routine with some freelance writing and some things that are maybe fit a little bit better. Yeah, it's um, a little more stable now, but I was doing like like if somebody had like a handyman job or whatever that I thought I could do, I'd go do that. And yeah, weren't you weren't you cooking and and slinging beers at Carl's for I a was, while too? I was doing that one year. I was printing t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anything that I that I could get my hands on that would pay a little bit of money, I was doing to to try to <laughs> try to make ends meet. Yeah, probably probably well served with uh, your your background and your entrepreneurial spirit there as well. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I can certainly uh, I can certainly do just about anything if I need to. Uh, but I will tell you, like, I mean, kind of going back to the struggles that people have with, I it's depressing too, though, right? I mean, and to be honest, it was very. Uh, I got kind of depressed about what, like what I was going to do to make, make money. And then one of the things that happens when you get in that state, you kind of get in like survival mode and you, you don't even see like the good options. You just see kind of like 
how bad things are and then it turns into like a survival thing and you're like well i'll do this i'll make i'll make enough money to live you kind of stop thinking that anything better can happen and you just fall into a mode of this is what i have to do to to make ends meet and then and when you come out of that fog kind of when things do get better you then suddenly see all the other better options that were out there that you could have done um but your mind can't see it at the time because you're so kind of panicked about particularly if you grew up and 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 resource insecure environment you kind of fall back into that panic mode of just i have to do something to get money now um, and it doesn't really matter what it is. It, it, and I think that affects a lot of people all over the place. Yeah, I can see how that would be. That's obvious. That's a very challenging situation to be in for anyone. Um, and we're asking people to make very important decisions about our whole state um, while they maybe don't have, they're not maybe, they probably do a lot of the folks out there have enough resources where they don't have to worry about that, but that's not because of uh, the job itself. So we've been talking some about some of the, the challenges and frustrations with being a legislator, but, and I know we're, we're coming to the conclusion of our time that we can spend together today. And I'm, I'm wanna, wanna end on some sort of positive note. I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell me what, what is the most rewarding thing about being a legislator for you? Without a doubt, the most rewarding part of it is the the people that I get to meet and help. I mean, the the last couple of years with, you know, all the pandemic stuff, a lot of people had a lot of questions. A lot of people, uh, I, I felt like I, I got to share information with them. And I tried to go back uh, to be in a more journalistic mode during that time. I didn't want to, a lot of people talked about, everything to do with the coronavirus in terms of politics, right? It was like through this political lens. I really tried not to do that because I thought everybody's scared. Everybody doesn't know what to do. They're either scared or they're frustrated with what's being done. And the best thing I can do is just deliver the information, particularly in those early days. Um, but as that unfolded, there were people that were struggling to uh, get through to state agencies or they were struggling to get unemployment resolved because the whole system was overwhelmed being able to help people through the fact that I have either a deeper understanding of how these systems work and can help somebody who doesn't get through them, that's rewarding. Or if there's somebody that I can contact because I have a title and I can help someone who needs help get it or get it more quickly, that's the, the most rewarding part. Um, Another rewarding part is just having these conversations with people, right? And talking to them about how their engagement matters, whether it's voting, whether it's talking to other people in their community, whether it's talking about how to bring people together around an issue that they care about. There's so much apathy and it's, it's not illegitimate like to think that um, when people get down and they have that feeling that, that their voice doesn't matter, that their concerns don't matter, but, but it does, they, and there's a way, they just have to organize, they have to talk about it, they have to share that with others, they have to engage policymakers, they have to engage their community and other people, and through that, you can change policy and you can make things happen. And it's slow and it's frustrating and it takes a lot of work, but talking to people about the importance of that is really rewarding. And, and the third thing I'll say that is really rewarding about the job is the opportunity to learn things. And I know I go on about this and it's kind of goofy, but 
this box turtle thing, which a few weeks ago I interviewed Jim Gartner about that, I got to learn things about the ornate box turtle I would never get to learn if, I, if it wasn't for this job. The, the fact that there was legislation brought and I got to ask Jim about it and then we got to hear testimony from a doctor who's studying this issue for his entire life. Those things are really, really rewarding and, uh, and, and that frankly is what makes the job worthwhile. That's great. Well, thank you for sitting down and spending some time talking with me today and for giving me the opportunity to be the one who is interviewing you. I think that um, there are a lot of things that I wanted to talk about that we didn't get to as well. We somehow managed to have an interview with you where we didn't talk about cycling and we didn't talk about fishing and we didn't talk about Teddy Roosevelt. So I feel like <laughs> we've missed uh, some major uh, some major topics. Uh, maybe there will be an opportunity to return uh, to some of those again in the future. But um, thank you for what you do and thank you for sharing with all of your listeners a little bit behind the scenes about who you are as well. Um, I think what's so great about this podcast is it's an opportunity to hear from real people about their stories and how they got to where they are and why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and so I hope that for your listeners, we've been able to shed a little bit of light on that for you uh, as well. Well, I was glad to do it. And I, I'm confident that we'll get to explore some of those other topics later on. All right. Take care. All right. I'd like to thank a few of the people who have helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son Mitchell Probst wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.